Father God, we thank you that we can, we can gather, God, and we can sing songs that declare the fact that any and every victory that we have is because of Jesus. In song, we declared the fact that Jesus is the way and he is the truth and he is the life. And that, that truth undergirds everything we say and everything we do here at this church and all that we talk about this morning. And I would ask God that you would open our hearts and our minds and make us ready to receive whatever it is you have to say to us this morning as individuals, but also God, that we would reflect well about your word together. And would it change us? That, that would be our prayer. And we offer this prayer up to you in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible, turn to Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter one. We're going to finish the Pentateuch. That's a word referring to the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And uh, we are going to finish the Pentateuch this morning. We're going to say goodbye to Moses. Uh, we are looking at one of the great books of the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. It's quoted more than 80 times in the New Testament, along with Genesis and Isaiah and Psalms. It's one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. And it begins this way with these words. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hezeroth, and Dizahab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by, the Mount, uh, by Mount Seir Road. Uh, verse two is a little interesting there. That's that, the last part that we read. Uh, it's kind of odd, actually, when you read it. You might wonder why the writer is giving us a little travel tip. Um, there's actually a good reason, because if we keep reading, verse 3 says, in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. Uh, in the 40th year, it says, the writer of this book wants us to remember how long this trip has taken from Mount Sinai, uh, about to enter into the promised land uh, from Mount Horeb, uh, because normally it takes just about 11 days. But it has taken these guys 40 years. Anybody knowing anything about the geography, anything, anybody reading uh, these verses would be struck by the fact that you took 40 years to travel what should have taken about 11 days. What is more, a whole generation of Israelites died in the wilderness. We were talking about that last week. They never experienced what God had promised all because of their stubborn, foolish refusal to trust in this God and evidence that trust by obeying him. And the writer is saying to the people who read this book, you know, in terms of a subtext, is saying, don't you make the same stupid, foolish, sinful mistakes. Don't take 40 years of your life to learn a lesson you should have learned in 11 days. That's really what he's saying. Pay attention. Get to know this God. Trust in this God. Obey this God. That will be the best thing for you. That will enable you to flourish in life. And the writer is actually establishing a sense of urgency in this book that runs throughout the book. I mean, the people are now finally, after 40 years, 
about to enter into the promised land. Uh, they're no doubt excited. There's probably, they're no doubt also a little bit afraid, I would guess. Uh, maybe even overwhelmed at the prospect of what awaits them when they enter in and start to take possession of other people's property. I'm sure they're curious about what they're going to find. And, and Moses uh, is not going to be going with them. That's what we talked about last week, Numbers 20. Moses isn't going to lead them into the promised land. This great leader who has led them for more than 40 years is not going to be there. Moses, we saw in Numbers 20 uh, last week, kind of put himself forward. Sort of like, you know, he and God do these tremendous miracles together. You recall the situation. They needed water. They're in the wilderness. They're, they're saying we're going to die out here. And Moses says, must we, meaning God and I, again bring you water, you know, kind of elevates himself. And in so doing, he actually steals God's glory, puts some of that glory on himself. He actually is claiming some of the power of God. Here I go again. I've got to provide water for you. And God punishes him for that. We saw it. Moses would not enter the promised land. Moses would die and go to heaven. We called that a severe mercy, you remember. That was his punishment. It was also his reward. And so for Israel, this is sort of now act two, where they actually do begin the promised land adventure. It's been a wilderness adventure so far. Now it's going to be a promised land adventure. And for Moses, it's the end. I mean, he knows it. He's crystal clear about this. The people know it. He's not going to enter into the promised land. He is going to die. And so these are the last words that he will say to this people here in this book, the book of Deuteronomy. This is the people that he has led for a long, long time. He has loved them well. He has loved them much. He has interceded for them many a time. And we have seen some of those times. And so Deuteronomy is Moses' final message. It's his farewell address. And Moses does not do what people usually do at retirement events, which is, you know, rehearse some of the great things that happened while they were leading or during his career. That's not at all what Moses does. Moses says these words, Deuteronomy chapter four. Now, Israel, hear the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them. So that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. What does that sound familiar? Where else in the scriptures do we have similar kinds of admonitions? Anybody? The book of Revelation, which we studied some time ago. At the very end of the Bible, we're instructed not to add to or subtract from the word of God. Here, as Moses delivers his farewell address, he's saying the same thing. Don't add to these words, these laws, which I might add is exactly what Israel did as time moved forward. They added many laws to these laws. Um, and he said, don't subtract from them. Don't ignore any part of this law. Ingest it. Live your life in and through these laws. Now, the vast majority of Deuteronomy is Moses' desperate plea for people to remember and to honor and to love and to follow 
this God. How? Well, that's what the law is for. By keeping, by observing, by internalizing the law of God. In fact, the name Deuteronomy comes from two Greek words, deuteros, second, nomos, law. So second law, second giving of the law. And understand, the law became the prized possession of the people of Israel. It does in time become their pride possession. Moses says this, he says, see, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? Remember the whole point of the tabernacle was to to illustrate the fact that God was going to what? Dwell with them. Moses is saying, now, if you carefully follow these laws, you will demonstrate to everybody that this God is dwelling with you, that there's something distinctly different about this community than other communities. And he says, and what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Nobody's got what we got, he's saying. Moses says the law is what will set you apart from other people. That and the fact that God's presence is with you. Now, verse nine, he says, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip. I love this, this imagery. Let them slip from your heart. You see, they've seen God do stuff. It's pretty amazing. Many of them were there. They were children, but many of them were there. And it's capable that even seeing the magnificent, almighty God work and do remarkable things, that we let those things that we know to be true slip from our heart. And Moses says, don't let these things slip from your heart. As long as you live, teach them to your children and to their children after them. And then uh, two chapters later in Deuteronomy chapter six, this is a real famous passage. I'm sure most of you are familiar with this. It's called the Shema. We've looked at it before. Shema is just the Hebrew word. It means here. It's the first word that uh, of this whole uh, text. Moses says this, he says, hear Shema, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. When are you supposed to talk about this stuff? All the time. All the time. Moses goes on and says, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates where you enter your property. Moses' intent is real clear. You know, we all forget things. Uh, Things slip from our memory, right? Where are the car keys? 
Holly, my wife's always forgetting her glasses. Where, where are my glasses? And I'm, you know, they're, they're right there beside you, honey, whatever. But uh, where have I parked the car? Where did I last put the kids? All kinds of stuff. <laughs> Moses is saying, do whatever it takes. Tie a string around your finger. Uh, write it in a, uh, on the back of your hand. Put it in a box. The Shema was often written on small parchment, put in a little box that was worn on the forehead. People actually did this. And the point was, don't forget the law of God. More importantly, don't forget to trust in and obey God through observing the law. The law was Israel's prized possession. It was more important than David's palace, which would someday be built. It was more important than Solomon's temple. It was more important than the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, Listen to the kinds of things they would say about the law. The psalmist says in Psalm 19, the commands of the Lord are more precious than much fine gold. Now, none of us believe that. I bet the psalmist struggled also to believe that. But it's true. Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all a day long. Psalm 119, uh, 100, verse 111, your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. And here's the thing, the wisest people of Israel loved the law of God. In fact, they spent their lives thinking about it, memorizing it, discussing and debating it, meditating on it, teaching it. The law was given. The law was designed to guide God's people in a path of righteousness, abundant living, if you will. If they followed the law, their communities, their families, their society would honor God and also honor people, people made in his image. And they would be very different than any of the other communities which would surround them. I'll give you some examples. There are whole sections of the law that are just about things like generosity or giving or being gracious with the stuff that God has given us. It might surprise you to discover that a considerable number of the laws that we find in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy have to do with trusting God and evidencing that trust by living generously. Or put it another way, by loving your neighbor when they have needs. Leviticus 27 says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It's holy to the Lord. Deuteronomy 14, be sure to set aside a tenth of all your fields produce each year. This whole tithing thing, giving thing was all about loving God, honoring God, and trusting God, listening to God. It was all about uh, worshiping him. But tithing, it, this, this didn't stop there. There's all kinds of ripples, uh, related ripples in the law. Uh, God said there was also to be what's called a Sabbath year. This is interesting. Leviticus 25 says, when you enter the land, I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. So God says, out of concern for the earth that I made, I want the land to have a rest, one out of every seven years. Now think about the level of trust, the level of faith this would take. 
put, try to put yourself in their shoes. Every seventh year, you're not to plant anything. No sowing, no normal reaping. Now, some stuff would come up out of the ground and you could harvest that and eat that and live off of that, but no normal reaping. This would mean that you would give up the income and the produce that you would normally have from a normal year's activity. Why? Well, for one thing, out of concern for the creation that God himself had made, and for another thing, out of concern to obey God, to follow his law. Now, not just that, Deuteronomy 15 says at the end of every seven years. So this would be also during that same Sabbath year. This is what we read. It says at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loans they have made to other Israelites. They shall not require payment from another Israelite or relative because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. Wow. Okay. This is different. Imagine you send in your payment to the bank and they send it right back and they say, hey, good news, man. It's a Sabbath year. Yeah, your debts, they've all been canceled. You don't owe a dime. Now, as you might imagine, some would look for loopholes, right? So if we keep reading verse 7, this is what we read. It says, if there are poor among your people in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted and tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever he needs. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. And here's the thought, mm, the seventh year. The year for canceling debts is near. I'm not loaning you a dime because you won't pay it and then I'll have to cancel the debt. That's not gonna be good for me. No way, sorry, can't help you. He says, the seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near so that you do not show ill will toward your needy among your people and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. That's the promise. You see, the Sabbath year was this year where out of concern for the land, the land was to rest. Out of concern for the poor, uh, their debts were canceled, <laughs> forgiven. And so people are to give up one year of income out of seven in an agricultural society. What's the one thing that's always true about an agricultural economy? It's iffy. <laughs> There's risk every year. You, th you throw seed into the ground, well, we'll see what happens. You know, if we have rain, we, we, we'll, things will be good. If, if not, yikes, who knows? And one out of every seven years, cancel debts. But that's not all. There was something else uh, in the law of God given to the Israelites that would make them very different. It was called the year of Jubilee. You've heard about this. Leviticus 25, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants, not just Israelites, all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you. Now God's concern here, at least in part, was to prevent chronic poverty of any kind in Israel. 
So every 50 years in this land-based economy, all the land goes back to the original owners. The original families get their land back. They fell on hard times. They had to sell their, their land. Perhaps they had some loans and they couldn't pay those loans back or whatever. But now it, uh, we are told that they would receive back their property every 50 years. This would prevent the emergence of a chronic underclass. And this would happen, as I said, every 50 years, a radical return of a family's wealth out of concern to alleviate chronic poverty. Now, once again, in the year of Jubilee, over and above Sabbath years, one out of seven, the fields are to lie fallow. There's to be no sowing, no reaping. What would God's people be learning in this process? In this, well, no, for one, they'd be learning to trust. Wow, God, you've got to take care of us. We didn't sow anything because you told us not to. We're not going to go out and reap the way we normally do year to year to year because you told us not to. And oh yeah, by the way, this would also teach them to be generous, open-handed, not tight-fisted. Now, that, that's not all. There were also things called gleaning laws. These are kind of interesting. Deuteronomy 24 says, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. That's actually a code phrase. The alien, the fatherless, and the widow. That's just like saying the poor, the needy. This is anyone and everyone with needs, right? Leave it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. God is going to bless you when you handle your stuff this way, he says. He says, when you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. And remember that you were slaves in Egypt. You once had nothing, he's telling them until I gave it to you. And that is why I command you to do this, he says. This law is, is essentially saying, you know, when you harvest, be a little sloppy. Just be a little sloppy. Now, now why? What, what's kind of behind this? Well, at least in part, some of what's behind this is because there were people with needs. They had needs in the community. They needed a way to come up with some means of survival. You leaving some grain in the field would allow them to come behind your harvesters and collect some of that grain so they could survive. But it also had something to do uh, with affecting the hearts of God's people. God wanted them to change, wanted them to grow. You know, uh, God knows that inside each of us, there is this spirit. It's a broken spirit, but it's a spirit that says, you know something? What's mine is mine. It's not yours. It's mine. Leave it alone. Uh, and there's this other element to that same spirit that says, you know, I've got to wring every ounce of profit out of every deal I can. I've got to get every dime I can lay my hands on. And that thinking actually starts very, very early in the human heart, doesn't it, parents? After the word no, what is a two-year-old's favorite word in the whole wide world? Mine. Exactly. And I'll tell you something, God wants to root that sentiment, that broken spirit out of his people. 
And so he says, I want you to learn how to share. I want you to look at your fields and think of others, not just yourself. I want you to remember that you, uh, that what you have is actually always a gift from me to you. You were once slaves. And that is the spirit behind these gleaning laws of which we find many in the law of God. Now, here's the big point. In all of this, between things like tithing or Sabbath years or year of Jubilee or gleaning laws, you can see God is concerned that his people learn two things, at least two things. One, to trust him, to know that their needs will be met not by anything other than God himself. That was one big thing God wants them and wanted them to learn. Number two, he wanted them to cultivate hearts that are very much reflective of the heart of God. Hearts that actually care about and love their neighbors. God was after those kinds of things in laws like this. God says, if anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites... In any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Now, here's the thing. Try to imagine a community that lives like that. Man. I mean, that was supposed to be the Israelites. That is actually supposed to be the church. One of the reasons we have benevolence offerings or take benevolence offerings is so that the church can demonstrate this kind of generosity and graciousness to people with needs. But here's the deal. As far as we know, never in their history did the nation of Israel observe the Sabbath year rest where they didn't sow, where they canceled debts, nor did they ever celebrate the year of Jubilee. Again, no sowing, returning land to the original owners, the original families. Fast forward, as far as the church is concerned, here's the truth uh, that even though we have the example of God's ultimate sacrificial gift given to us, namely Jesus himself, and even though we have the spirit of God put into us, uh, to prompt us to do the things that honor God. The truth is, studies have shown, and I've said this before, that only about 5% of people who call themselves Christians actually ever put their money where their mouth is. Dang. What does that say? I don't know. <laughs> but it's scary. And yet God's law was really clear then and it's clear now. God wants us to be open-handed, generous people. He wants us to learn how to say something other than mine. So question. <laughs> uh, I, I love when I get to ask you the question that's bothering me, you know, and here's the question. How are you doing with this? Is covetousness or greed mine? Is that a problem for you? Do you need to listen to God in this area? I mean, here's the thing, you know, 
What is uh, suggested in the old is often made crystal clear in the new. You know, Jesus comes along and says, hey, you've got to be kingdom-minded. If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to care about my kingdom. And Jesus' words come to mind. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things, food, clothing, and shelter, that's what he's talking about. All these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Well, what's that all about, Jesus? Well, it's basically about putting God first, trusting God, believing that God will take care of you. And really, that's what all these laws that I'm referring to were about. They were there to teach God's people and to help them keep from being mastered or possessed by their possessions. Jesus said this one time. He said, no one can serve two masters. What's he getting at there? Well, he's getting at the reality that there are many things in life, many individuals, many things, many institutions that want to master you, own you, control you. There are many things. They take on many forms. But this time, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And so the Israelites needed to decide, can I trust God really to take care of me? Will I honor him with the stuff that he has given me? And God wants his people to be open-handed. That's one of the great themes of the law of God. Here's the second. (laughs) You find this in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and in the book of Deuteronomy. And you might not have uh, thought about this before, but uh, God wants us, his people, to be a celebratory, joy-filled people. Think of the Old Testament feasts, for example. If you have ever read through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you've probably noticed that there are a number of feasts that are talked about, happen to be seven, in fact, a feast that people are commanded to observe religiously, faithfully. Uh, One of them was the Passover feast. This lasted for one day. And of course, uh, it began on the 15th day of Nisan, the day after the Passover lambs were sacrificed, right? Uh, The feast marked their exodus out of Egypt in in a variety of ways. One was the sacrificial lamb that died in their place. Uh, You remember they took the blood of the lamb, they put it on the doorposts. You remember that they ate foods that had no uh, leaven whatsoever, unleavened bread. All of this reminded them of God's deliverance, God's sacrifice on their part, God's provision for them. Remember the death angel? That was the 10th plague, passed over Egypt. The firstborn in every household of Egypt perished. But not in Israel because of the blood of the lamb that was shed for them, pointing directly, directly to Jesus. This is just one instance where a feast actually was was pointing toward what God would do in Jesus. There's another feast, Feast of the Unleavened Bread. This one lasted for seven days. It started uh, the day after Passover, right? And then there's another feast, the Feast of First Fruits. It lasted for just one day. It was a Thanksgiving feast. There are actually three of these. Three of the seven feasts are Thanksgiving feasts, celebrations of God, God's provision in the harvest. Um, the, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles, both uh, of those as well were Thanksgiving feasts. And, and they just celebrated God's ongoing provision. You see, God wanted them to be thinking about, no, he will provide, he has provided. Here's the harvest, we celebrate this. It's interesting, although they didn't know it at the time, 
When the priests uh, sacrificed Passover lambs, they did so on the 14th day of the month. The month was Nisan. Uh, The first day of Passover was the 15th day. That was the next day. Lambs are sacrificed. The next day, the Passover feast is observed, right? Deliverance, God delivering us. Uh, That would have been, um, well, as I said, the second. And then the Feast of First Fruits was celebrated the third day, the 16th day. This third day celebration would have been the same day that Jesus rose from the dead. It's, it's not a coincidence that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus as the first fruits of the dead. He's referring back to this feast. You see, Jesus was the first great harvest of followers that God would resurrect to eternal life. Point simply being, the feast of first fruits was something pointing toward what Jesus was going to do one day. Now, you had other feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast on the Day of Atonement. We all know about the Day of Atonement. We talked about that in some detail. That was the day sacrifice was made, first for the high priest, then for the people of Israel. Then there was that goat, you know, placed the hand uh, hand on the head of the goat, sent the goat with the sins of Israel out into the wilderness to die. The question, why, why all these feasts? Why does God command his people to gather together and feast? Probably There are multiple answers to that question. I don't want to suggest there's one. But one answer certainly is that these feasts, uh, many of them point directly to Jesus' ministry, to Jesus' sacrifice, to Jesus' provision, to Jesus' resurrection even. Another reason, I think, for these feasts is just joy and rejoicing and celebration over what God has done. These feasts, as you can imagine, were very significant in the lives of God's people. Uh, Deuteronomy says, and this is about the Feast of Weeks, says this, it says, be joyful at your feast. You, your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants and the Levites, the aliens, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns for seven days, celebrate. Celebrate the feast to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands. And your joy will be complete. You see, it was God's desire that his people be joyful. That they have what they need. And therefore that they could be grateful and and contented and be wise in the use of the things that they had. In other words, another way to put this, using Jesus' language, God wanted them to live abundant lives. Many people think that the Old Testament presents a picture of God that is dark and grim and just this harshly judgmental God handing out onerous laws saying, there, you got to obey that, and you got to obey that, and you got to obey that. I hope you can see nothing could be further from the truth. The truth is God called his people, yes, to be holy, which they weren't. God called them to live a life set apart from other peoples, a life that was unique, and he gave them laws to to help them live that way. The laws were meant to bless his people one way by just identifying the fact that they couldn't keep the laws. That's one way it blessed them. And so it would drive them to consider why all these sacrifices? Look at what's going on at the tabernacle, later the temple. Why sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice? How is this, uh, what is this achieving? What is this accomplishing? Oh, my forgiveness through sacrifice. 
God uh, gave them the law to restrain sin, to punish sin, and to remind them how to atone for sin. But also, also, these laws called for joyful feasting. Joyful because of who God is. Joyful because of God's provision, because of God's salvation, because of God's care, because of God's promise that he would provide for them next year. You know, we we saw this last week. Were the Israelites a very joyful people? No, not so much. A lot of whining, a lot of grumbling, a lot of complaining. And so God builds into their annual schedule opportunities for joy. He builds it right into their schedule. Times to remember, times to repent, times to celebrate. He wants his people to stop whining, stop complaining, stop comparing, stop grumbling all the time and be joyful. How you doing with that one? <laughs> you know, it's interesting. The New Testament reflection of this God has given us a feast day as well. We have one day every week when the church gathers to worship. One day every week in the cycle of a week uh, where we eat food, particularly when we uh, are taking the Lord's Supper that we desperately need. Where we sing music that reminds us of God's character, God's holiness, our sin, our forgiveness, God's provision for us, God's goodness, God's deliverance, and on and on and on the list goes. And what is more, we get to be with people who bring us joy and hopefully encouragement. Hopefully somebody here brings you joy, brings you encouragement. I know some don't. (laughs) What I want us to see is that this whole idea of the law that most people think very little about, this this idea of feasting is is part and parcel of the feasts of the Old Testament that actually carry uh, right into the new as we gather for worship on Sunday. These things were about celebrating and rejoicing and pointing to what God had done for them and what Jesus was going to do. They were all about living an abundant life. God is very concerned about the kinds of lives we live. He wants us to be joyful. Now, there's one more area in the law that I want to mention. We'll have to run through this kind of quickly. These are the laws when you read through the uh, book of Deuteronomy or the Pentateuch where you just kind of scratch your head and go, what? Laws like Deuteronomy 22.10, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. Okay. (laughs) Deuteronomy 22.11, do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. Okay. Deuteronomy 25.4, don't muzzle the ox while it treads grain. Deuteronomy 22.6, if you come across a bird's nest beside the road, either in a tree or on the ground, and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, do not take the mother with the young. You may take the young, but be sure to let the mother go so that it may go well with you and you may have a long life. If you want a short life, go ahead and eat the mother. (laughs) Deuteronomy 14.21, do not eat anything you find already dead. Okay, okay, I'm good good with that. You may give it to an alien living in any of your towns and he may eat it or you may sell it to a foreigner, but you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. 
Or how about laws like these? Deuteronomy 21, 18 says, if, if you have a contumacious, a lawless son, a lawless child who will not, just simply will not obey you, and they dishonor God, they dishonor you, and they just do it constantly, constantly, consistently, you can stone them. I, and I don't mean this, I mean this, <laughs> right? There are laws that allowed people to have slaves. Uh, there was a law that allowed a husband to write a certificate of divorce for just about any reason and be done with his wife. Uh, there are laws, uh, actually, there are no laws against polygamy. That's interesting. There's a law that says a woman's vows to God have to get cleared through her husband and her father. There are laws that look very harsh to us when we read them. Laws like lex talionis, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Question, what is going on with these laws? What's the deal? Did God change his mind later on and send Jesus with some better ideas? I mean, what is going on with these head-scratching kinds of laws? First of all, this. Context, friends, matters a lot. You see, God deals with people right where they are, in the culture in which they already function. We have to remember that before Moses' time, there were no written scriptures. There was no such thing as a Judeo-Christian ethic anywhere. The documents that later produced such a thing were just then being written. The law was written to real people, unholy, unloving, uncaring, self-centered, self-promoting, selfish people just like you and me. God writes these laws to those kinds of people living in cultures which they have developed, which are not much influenced by the law of God. And of course, there were many practices in Moses' day that were clearly opposed to God's ideal for the human race. But these practices were standard operating procedure in the Old Testament world. The law didn't institute them or baptize them and say, these are all good. No, it just operates within and around them often. Things like divorce or polygamy or patriarchy or slavery. God's strategy was not to ban these practices instantly and outright, but to put limits around them and to restrain them. And slowly over time, people would be weaned away from them. For instance, slavery was rampant in Old Testament cultures, but God set limits around the practice of slavery. In Deuteronomy 15, God tells Moses, there will be limits on the practice of slavery. Only six years of service will be allowed. And then the slave is to be released, but not just released, with gifts. What kind of gifts? Oh, livestock, it says. Grain, it says. Wine. These are things to get this released slave on his feet. You see, God puts limits around the practice of slavery, just like he did around the practice of divorce, just like he did around the practice of polygamy, just like he did around the reality of patriarchy. And God knew that one day some people would begin to see and understand things like Genesis 1 and 2, that human beings are made in the image of God, in his holy image. And practices like this, therefore, are not really compatible with the dignity and the worth of a human being who is made in his image. Now, here's why I mention all this, because some of you are going, why are you mentioning all this? 
Sometimes people will talk about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. I've had these conversations with some people. They talk as if there are two different gods. Let me be emphatic and I hope clear here. That opinion is 100% wrong. That just indicates that the person talking doesn't get it, doesn't understand how the Old Covenant and New Covenant relate to one another. You see, the God of the Old Covenant is exactly the same as the God of the New Covenant. The God of the Old Testament, same as the God of the New Testament. He's just in his judgments, always was, still is. He's truthful, he's merciful, he's powerful, he's righteous, he's all-knowing, he's holy. God judges the nations in the Old Testament and in the New. God punishes evil in the Old Testament and in the New. God destroys and overcomes dark kingdoms regardless of the type of expression of them in the Old Testament and in the New. But he also watches out for sparrows and he clothes the lilies of the field and he counts the hairs on your head if you have some and he searches for a single lost sheep. These are pictures that Jesus painted of his heavenly father and they are rich pictures and they are tender, merciful pictures. But remember, Jesus got those pictures from reading and knowing the Old Testament. The God who gave us the law is the God who also delivers us from our inability to keep it. Now, here's the deal. Moses wanted his people to love and to honor and to obey God. And he's done everything he can to ensure that they will. And now at the end of his journey, Moses has one last prayer. He walks the people all the way through a reminder of what God has done. Uh, he goes over all the details of the law, the covenant with them. And then he does something very important. You see, every uh, covenant has witnesses that formalize the covenant to ratify it, just like a marriage covenant. Why do you get married standing before a judge or standing before people? Because witnesses ratify the covenant. They hear the promises you're making. And so Moses says this, he says, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. And then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses. I set before you this day life and prosperity, death and destruction. Life and prosperity if you follow God, death and destruction if you don't. Now choose life, he says. Don't be a fool. And that was his last speech. 
And he leaves his people and he climbs up Mount Nebo and he looks out on the promised land that he's not going to enter and he dies there and God buries him. And here's the deal. His words to the human race about this covenant-making, covenant-keeping, law-giving God are just as true and relevant today as they were 3,500 years ago. I set before you this day life and prosperity, death and destruction. Choose life, he says. And so we choose, don't we? Every day. Will I believe in and trust in Jesus or will I not? Now, here's the thing. This is a God who knows us through and through. One thing he knows about me is that try as I might, no matter how good my intentions are, I can't and I won't obey the law, not even close to perfectly. I fail and I fail and I fail. But God has made provision for my failure, just like he has for yours. And that provision is in Jesus. You know, we celebrate something every Sunday called the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, that through faith alone, we are made just in the eyes of God. And we either live in that culture, the culture of the gospel, the truth about Jesus, or we have a legalistic, elitist performance culture where people are welcomed here on the basis of their performance or their race or their status or their politics. And these two cultures, they they cannot coexist. They cannot. Either we let the law of God draw us to Jesus and the gospel, or we let legalism choke out a gospel culture. Either we have grace and mercy and peace as a part of our culture as we do life with each other and with people out there. And all of these things, of course, lead to faith and to hope and to love. Or we have a culture of do better and do more. And I'll tell you where that leads. That leads to doubt and to despair and to devastation. We have a savior. (laughs) He's our sustainer. He overcomes our problem of not being able to keep the law. There's a quote by a pastor I saw just recently where he says that Christian faith does not begin with a loud do, but with a thundering done. (laughs) Not with try harder, but with it is finished. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the Old Testament. We thank you for what it reveals to us about ourselves and what it reveals to us about you. We thank you, God, that you want us to celebrate not our accomplishments, but the accomplishments of Jesus. We thank you, God, for the beauty of the law, the righteousness that it portrays. But we readily admit, God, we fail time and time again to keep it. Even when we want to, we fail to keep it. But thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you that we get to live in the truth and the light of what he has done. Thank you that you meet us here in this place to remind us week after week after week of your provision, your sacrifice, 
You're overcoming sin and death for our sake. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.